Chapter 12 She awoke to more darkness. The rain had stopped, that was something, but a mist hung just beyond the window like a dirty veil on the world. The Sunday bells rang as usual, but her mother, who had slept badly, didn't attempt to go to church, and since neither of them could face breakfast, they simply sat at the kitchen table with a cooling pot of tea between them, too dazed for conversation, paralyzed by the wrongness of things. Presently, they rose to go over to the drawing room, and as they were crossing the hall, Lillian came down to take a bath. She came a step at a time, leaning heavily on her sister's arm. Frances darted forward to help. Her mother, hanging back, said, "'How are you feeling, Mrs. Barber?' She was still ghastly pale, though her gaze to Frances's relief was clearer. "'I feel so weak,' she answered. "'I'm sure you do.' I'm glad you have someone here to look after you, with the ghost of a smile for Vera. I meant to go to morning service. I should so like to have said a prayer for you there, but I couldn't quite manage it today. I shall say my prayers for you here instead. Lillian dipped her head. Thank you, Mrs. Ray. I'm sorry everything's been so, so awful. You mustn't think that. You must keep up your strength. <clears throat> and if there's anything at all that Francis or I can help do to help you, you must tell us, will you? Lillian nodded, grateful, her eyes filming with tears. But there was something, Frances thought, slightly strained about the encounter, an odd lack of warmth on her mother's part, despite the kindness of her words. And when the two of them had gone through, gone through to the drawing room, her mother sat down and said in an almost querulous way, Mrs. Barber looks dreadful. Surely it would make more sense for her to be with her family. Why on earth didn't her mother take her home with her last night? She tried to take her, said Frances, as she laid kindling in the grate. Lillian doesn't want to go. Why not? She wants to stay here. But why? She looked up. Well, why do you think? It's her home. Her mother didn't answer that. She sat with her hands in her lap, her papery fingers fidgeting. The morning wore on in its off-kilter way. Frances waited for another chance to see Lillian alone and found none. Outside, the mist thickened until it might have been pressing at the house. Indoors, she seemed to feel the drawing room steadily filling with her mother's sighs. When, at around midday, she answered a knock at the front door and saw that it was Mrs. Viney was back. With Netta, Min, Baby City, and Vera's little girl, Violet, she felt genuinely pleased to see them. Violet had her doll's pram with her, and she helped her maneuver it into the hall. But Mrs. Viney came in puffing, her color higher than ever. Had Mrs. Ray and her mother seen the news of the world? No. With a grim sort of pride, she fished a paper out of a balding carpet bag on her arm to show Frances a smudged half-column entitled Murder at Champion Hill, Clerk's Mysterious Death. A frightful discovery was made early yesterday morning at Champion Hill, Camberwell. The body of Mr. Leonard Barber, a resident of the Good Class Street, was found in a secluded spot where it had apparently been lying for many hours. Mr. Barber, an insurance clerk, had plainly received a most ghastly blow to the head. Policeman and a doctor were summoned at once, but life being found to be extinct, the body was conveyed to the Camberwell mortuary. Mr. Barber's widow, on being informed of her husband's death, is said to have plunged into a collapsed condition with very pitiful results. Frances felt sick. To see the case reported like that, unequivocally like that, as murder, to see the reference to Lillian, to see it all there, between another lurid headline, boys escape, and cheap advertisements for winter woolies and a constipation cure. Insurance clerk, she said. How do they know so much already? And pitiful results. Where do they get that from? 
Well, not from anyone in our family, said Mrs. Viney. That's for sure. There was a chap at the shop yesterday asking questions, my husband told me. He sent him off with a flea in his ear, and I shall do the same if I see him. But word gets about. That's the trouble. People will talk. Well, it's human nature. One thing I am pleased about, they mentioned the class of the street. As soon as I saw that, I said to Min, Well, thank heavens for that, if only for Miss Ray and her mother's sake. Didn't I, Min? Still, she added in a lower tone. I shan't show this to Lil. It wouldn't do her no good, would it? Have you seen her this morning, Miss Ray? Is she any better in herself? It's a terrible thing to lose your husband. I remember when her poor father died. I didn't know whether I was on my heels or on my head. I ran out into the street in my petticoat. A man crying brooms had to dash water in my face. As she spoke, she tucked the newspaper back into her bag, and Frances saw in the bag's interior open packets of black material, along with a, along with a jumble of black silk flowers, black threads, ribbon, ribbons, and dye. Yes, said Mrs. Viney, noticing the direction of her gaze. They planned to make Lil some morning costumes this afternoon. They'd gone right through her wardrobe yesterday, and would you believe it, with all those colors of hers, she'd barely got a bit of black to her name. Hearing movement overhead, she stomped forward. Are you there, my darling? It's only me and your sister's love. She began to haul herself up the stairs. And so, once again, the house became a muddle of footsteps, creaking floorboards, and raised voices. Drawers were open in Lillian's bedroom. There were arguments in the little kitchen. Frances heard pans and kettles being filled, then set to heat on the stove. Soon, lids were rattling above simmering water, and the sourish, briny smell of the black dye began to creep downstairs. She recognized it with a shiver, for it was one of those scents, like the smell of khaki and of certain French cigarettes, forever to be associated with the worst days of the war. But she couldn't bear to let all the activity keep her from Lillian. Not again. She and her mother ate an unhappy, unsunday lunch, and her mother returned to the chair by the fire. But she herself went up and tapped shyly at the sitting room door, just wanting to know, she said, if the family needed any help. They had begun sewing already. They all had pools of black silk in their laps. The curtains at the windows were partway shut, out of respect for Leonard, she supposed. But the lamps were lighted, coals were piled high in the grate, and the stains on the carpet were lost in the general clutter. The room retained its coziness in spite of everything that had happened. Vera was at one end of the sofa, a saucer of cigarette stubs by her arm. Min was beside her, sitting with her legs drawn up. Lillian was at the other end, close to the fire. <clears throat> She was sewing like her sisters, but she let the work fall and dropped her head against a cushion to look over at Frances while Netta fetched a kitchen chair. On Friday evening, Frances thought, she herself had sat where Min was now, holding on to Lillian's hand. Their furniture had felt real, close, palpable, just an inch or two beyond their outstretched fingers. Now, their future, not their furniture, their, their future had felt real. Okay. Now, returning Lillian's gaze, she saw her tired, dark eyes begin to brim with tears, as if exactly the same vision had occurred to her. They exchanged a tiny shake of the head, a shrug of hopeless regret. If only, if only, if only. The little girl was at one of the windows, tracing patterns on the steamy glass. She turned to the room. There's a policeman coming. Frances looked at her. Coming to the house? She answered as, as of to a half-wit. No, coming to the moon. And while Vera got up to smack her, Frances pushed past her and, wiping a pane, saw two men down on the pavement, just lifting the latch of the garden gate. She recognized Sergeant Heath at once. The other man wore an ordinary brown ulster with a Homburg hiding his face. 
but as they crossed the front garden, he tilted back his head, and then she saw his pink bank manager's lips and chin, his steel glasses. It was Inspector Kemp. He spotted her at the window and raised his hand. She couldn't tell anything from their expressions when she let them in, and their tones when they spoke were as bland as ever. They apologized for disturbing her. They wanted a word with Mrs. Barber, that was all. They were assuming that she was at home. She gestured them up the staircase, looked in on her mother, then followed them up into the sitting room. The bits of black sewing had been hastily tidied away. Lillian had shifted to the front of the sofa and was nervously smoothing down her hair. I hope you're feeling better, the inspector asked her once a few subdued greetings had been exchanged. I don't mean to keep you too long today, but if you can spare me a few minutes, I'd be grateful. I'd like to tell you about the progress we're making with the case. He sounded amiable enough. Again, however, Francis had the impression that his friendliness was all surface, or worse than that, was somehow strategic, designed to put Lillian at her ease, the better later to trip her up. In a minute or two that it took to bring in another chair, she saw him gazing around the room, clearly taking it all in. When Sidi awoke and began crying and had to be bounced on Netta's knee, he stood in a patient way on the hearth rug, looking politely at the objects on the mantelpiece, the elephants, the Buddha, the tambourine, the china caravan. Sidi's howls subsided and the room settled down. Francis remained over by the door on one of the kitchen chairs. Sergeant Heath had the other between Netta and Mrs. Viney. The inspector took the easy chair across the hearth from Lillian. She sat at the front of it, still in his overcoat, his elbows on his parted knees, his hat dangling from his pudgy fingers. Well, he said, addressing Lillian, I dare say you've seen the morning papers. I should like to have spoken to you before we made our statement to the press, but they caught us on the hop a bit last night. I must apologize for that. I'm afraid what they're saying is true. We've had our suspicions from the start, as you know, but there's no doubt whatever now that this is a case of murder. Francis's heart seemed to lose its footing. All this time, in spite of everything, she'd had a small, persistent hope that there would be too much uncertainty for the police to be able to commit themselves to the idea of the crime, to the word. Lillian must have felt the same. She closed her eyes, held herself tensely, as unable to answer. Min, sitting beside her, gave her an awkward, comforting pat. Nettie drew City closer. The little girl, cross-legged on the poof now, pinning scraps of black material together, sensed a stir and lifted her head. Only the men were still, still and watchful, Francis thought, and partly to draw their attention from Lillian, who remained in that fixed, incapable pose. She cleared her throat and said, How can you be sure? The inspector looked across at her. Our medical examiner, Mr. Palmer, has confirmed it. Yes, but how? Well, there are certain details, the nature of the injury, and so on. I wouldn't wish to distress Mrs. Barber by saying too much. But they had to hear, thought Francis. They had to know what the police had discovered. And again, Lillian must have been thinking the same thing. She said, you might as well tell me. I'll have to hear it sometime, won't I? So now he looked over at the little girl in a meaningful sort of way. Vera said smoothly, Vi, take Sidi next door and show him Auntie Lily's perfume bottles. There's a good girl. Violet pulled a face. I don't want to. You take him right now or there'll be trouble. The, sergeant, the shar- sergeant's got his eyes on you. Look. With a glance at Sergeant Heath, half doubtful, half fearful, Violet slid from the poof, took Sidi from Netta's arms, and carried him gracelessly from the room. Well, began the inspector, when the door had banged shut behind her. 
It's a matter of the different effect of different sorts of blows to the human head. A man taking a tumble, you see, and striking his head, that produces one quite distinct sort of wound. But a man being hit, let's say, by a hammer, well, that produces quite another. Mr. Palmer was alerted right away by the appearance of the fracture, and by the direction in which the blood had run into Mr. Barber's clothes. Once he'd made a full examination, he found, from the bruising on Mr. Barber's brain, that, well, it put the matter quite beyond question. He kept his gaze on Lillian as he spoke. She had lowered her eyes, but her breast had begun to rise and fall. She wants to look at me, thought Francis, able to feel the tug of her fear and growing fearful in response. She pleaded with her silently, don't, don't, the look, look will give everything away. But now Mrs. Viney leaned forward, fixing the inspector with a lashless eye, a touch of challenge and a creak of her stays. She said, how it was done is a one thing. Can you say who done it? After a second, he sat back. We can't, just yet, but we're confident that the killer will be found. You'll have seen our men going up and down the street. We're putting things together, one piece at a time. There's not much evidence, unfortunately, from the actual scene of the crime. One or two interesting details on Mr. Barber's overcoat, but aside from them, and a fingerprint... A fingerprint? echoed Francis. He said, A print was discovered in among the blood on Mr. Barber's shirt front. It's more or less useless, I'm sorry to say. It was too long in the rain. It might have come from Mr. Barber himself, or might have got there in some sort of a struggle. His clothes were pulled about, you see, and his hat was off before the blow came, suggesting to us that he grappled with his attacker before he died. Francis had been right about the clothes, then, but the fingerprint, that was almost as bad as the stuff about the brain. It must have got onto Leonard's shirt as she was tidying him in the dark. She felt suddenly conscious of her hands, had to fight down the urge to clench them, hide them away. Had she made any other blunders? What the hell were those interesting details on Leonard's coat? Again, she felt the pull of Lillian's fear, and this time her own fear seemed to extend across the room to meet it. Risking a look at the sofa, she saw, she saw her with her head bowed and a hand in front of her face, her lips parted. Inspector Kent had begun to talk about the interviews that he and Sergeant Heath had conducted the day before. They had spoken to several people at Pearl Assurance, he said, who had confirmed that Leonard had left work on Friday at the usual time, and they had talked at length with Mr. Wismuth, who naturally was of particular interest to us as being able to help us put together a sense of Mr. Barber's movements just before his death. At the mention of Charlie's name, Lillian briefly closed her eyes. Frances knew that she was readying herself for what would come next. Chafing at her forehead with her fingertips, she looked up at the inspector and said in a thin, brave voice, what did Charlie tell you? He fished in a pocket. Oh, he was very useful to us. Gave us a good sense of the various timings of the night. He last saw your husband. Let me see. He brought out a notebook, located a page, and Frances, too, prepared herself for the revelation. Yes, he last saw Mr. Barber at just after ten. They've been drinking in the city together, going from one public house to another. He can't recall which one they ended up in. That's a pity, of course. We're sending officers to all the likely ones to ask for witnesses. But he remembers very clearly saying goodnight to Mr. Barber at the Blackfriars tram stop just after closing time. Now, assuming that Mr. Barber had no trouble in catching his tram and taking into account the length of the journey from Blackfriars to Camberwell, we calculate that he arrived back here at around a quarter to eleven. That would have been when you yourself, Mrs. Barber, were already asleep in bed. That's what you told us yesterday? Lillian's head was still bowed. Her hand was still in front of her face. She'd been staring at him through her fingers. Now she lowered her hand. Yes. 
And Miss Ray and her mother, he went on with a nod to Frances, was, were also in bed at the time, which is perhaps why Mr. Barber went to the trouble of walking all the way around the back lane to avoid disturbing the house too much. Can you think of any other reason? Unable to answer, Lillian shook her head. Well, he said, after a second. It's a great shame that he did, for he must have been killed more or less straight off. Mr. Palmer says his body was lying in the lane for above eight hours. It's possible that he disturbed a burglar. That was one of our first ideas. But given that his pocketbook remained untouched, we're ruling robbery out for a moment. Instead, we're working on the theory that he was pursued or lured into the lane by a person or persons unknown, who either set on him with the intention of killing him or hit out at him as a result of some altercation. The blow was a vicious one, we do know that, and struck from behind by a right-handed assailant, someone not over tall. Death must have been almost instant. The bleeding seems to have stopped very nearly before he hit the ground. The instrument was blunt, a pipe or a mallet, I'd say. We've been looking in gardens and storm drains for it without success so far. But we'll turn it up, you mark my words, and it'll lead us straight to our man. He said all this to Lillian, with occasional glances around the room to draw in and impress the rest of him, and Lillian returned his gaze as he spoke, as if mesmerized. But once he was silent, she changed her pose, looking over at Francis as she shifted, and there was a flash of something between them, part apprehension, part bafflement. For why on earth, thought Francis, would Charlie Wismuth have said that he had been with Leonard until past ten? At ten o'clock, Leonard was already dead, already out in the lane. At ten o'clock, she was cutting up the grisly yellow cushion. Leonard had told Lillian, hadn't he, that Charlie had had to leave early, that they'd only had time for a couple of beers. But why would Charlie lie? Again, it was Mrs. Viney who spoke first. Poor Lenny. He didn't deserve that, did he? Not to be hit from behind like that. No, nobody deserves that. And he wasn't a quarreling man. That's what I don't understand. Why would he have gone into the lane with a black guard like that? He didn't go in there with him, said Vera in a brittle, patient way. The inspector says that somebody must have followed him. Followed him? Gone in after him, quietly. Mrs. Viney looked outraged. Oh, now that's a dirty trick. Inspector Kemp said again that that was one of their theories, at any rate. And he repeated his claim about the pipe with a mallet, that they were sure to turn it up, and then the case would be halfway solved. A professional killer, you see, he said, or a man used to violence. He knows how to dispose of a weapon. He has pals he can pass it on to. But we're not looking for a professional killer. We think our fellow is more steady than that, someone with regular habits. Regular habits, cried Mrs. Viney, when he goes about murdering people in the dark. I thought it was some old soldier you was after. When it, wasn't it some old soldier who sat on Lenny that other time? Well, of course, said the inspector. There was only Mr. Barber's own word about that. He might well have been mistaken. The fact that no robbery took place, either that time or this. The man might have meant to do a robbery, said Vera, and got the wind up. Or he might, put in Netta, have heard a noise, seen someone coming. Yes, it's possible, the inspector answered, in the polite, patient tone he must, thought Francis, keep in reserve for thriller enthusiasts. But, he tapped his fingers on the brim of his hat, I don't know. There's just something about this case. When you've been in the police force for as long as Sergeant Heath and I have, you develop a nose. And just now my nose is telling me that this wasn't a cold-blooded act, that it was the work of a person with a grudge or a score to settle, or some reason for wanting to get Mr. Barber out of his way. And a person like that, with a used weapon in hand, his first thought is to get rid of it. 
His second thought is to get home as quick as he can. That works to our advantage, too. He has nowhere to hide, you see. He has neighbors, he has family, people seeing him come and go. Some of them might protect him for a time. He might have a wife, a girl, a lady friend, someone who thinks it, thinks it her romantic duty to keep quiet about what she knows. But she won't think that for long, if she's got any sense about her. She'll come forward sooner or later. The sooner the better, of course, from the point of view of her own safety. Again, he made gestures to Mrs. Viney, to the sisters and to Frances as he spoke, but it was unmistakably Lillian to whom he was addressing himself, and now, leaning forward, he fixed his gaze on hers. I'm afraid your thoughts weren't quite in order yesterday, Mrs. Barber. Nobody could have expected otherwise in the circumstances, but you've had time since then to turn things over in your mind, and I have to ask you what I asked you once before, in case some new piece of information should have occurred to you. Do you have any idea who might have killed your husband? Lillian stared at him in that mesmerized way, but shook her head. No. He pressed her. No idea at all. She turned away. No, none of it makes any sense to me. It's like a horrible dream, that's all. He sat back, it seemed to Francis, as if not quite satisfied with what he'd heard, but with an air of patience, of calculation, of being prepared to accept it for now. Or perhaps she was imagining things. How much could he know? How far could he guess? He had been speaking confidently, even complacently, but his account of the case had been a muddle of fact and fantasy, something approaching the heart of the matter, more often veering wildly away from it. As for all his talk about the man, the grudge, the score to settle, she suddenly absorbed the implication of his words, and for the first time in days, she felt a lifting of anxiety, like a drop in the pressure in her brain. She and Lillian had failed to pass off Leonard's death as an accident. All right. But wasn't this the next best thing? The inspector could search for his man forever. He couldn't catch someone who didn't exist. She came out of her own thoughts to find him talking about the inquest. It was to be open tomorrow morning at the coroner's court, but would be a relatively brief affair, he said, with the case having turned into a murder inquiry. He would request an adjournment from the coroner, Mr. Sampson, but they would still appreciate it if Mrs. Barber would attend. And you and your mother, too, Miss Ray, I'm afraid in case Mr. Sampson wished to interview them. He was sorry to say that they must be prepared for a certain amount of newspaper interest in Mr. Barber's death, and he hoped that this wouldn't prove troublesome. Mrs. Barber must be sure to let him, or Sergeant Heath, or one of his constables know if any reporters made a nuisance of themselves. Now that you're feeling a little bit better, she said to her, rising from the easy chair, I'd just like to run over your statement with you and clear up a few other points we're still unsure about. I'd also like your permission to look through your husband's things, the pockets of his clothes, for example, any personal papers or boxes. He waited. Lillian looked up at him. You want to do all that now? We'd be very grateful. Perhaps there's another room we might go to to save troubling your family? Oh, and there's one other matter, he added as uncertainly she got to her feet. Rather an intimate one, I'm sorry, but I think I might have mentioned Mr. Barber's overcoat. It's been with the analysts at Scotland Yard, and they found a number of hairs on it, not all of them from Mr. Barber's own head. I dare say the strays became attached just in the general way of things, but since there seems to have been a tussle before your husband died, it's possible that one or two of them came from the head of his attacker. It would help our inquiry if we could rule out the ones that must have gone onto the coat while it was here in the house. Could I ask you to provide me with a sample of hairs from your own head? Just half a dozen from a comb or a hairbrush will do. Then, unexpectedly, she looked across at Francis. Could I ask the same thing of you, Miss Ray? The hairs in question are all brown or black, so we need, needn't trouble your mother, I think. 
She couldn't answer for a moment. The question had called up a shock of memories in her muscles and her skin. The digging of Leonard's fingers into her armpit. The push and weight of his body as the two of them staggered across the carpet. This carpet, right here, with the stains of his blood still on it. She blushed and felt her face blaze where his cheek had rasped against hers. Yes, of course, she said. She put down her head and left the room. But then she stood at her chest of drawers with the hairbrush trembling in her hand. She didn't want to do it. They couldn't make her, could they? She had to force herself to tug free the hairs from the tangle caught in the bristles. And when, out on the landing, she handed the hairs to Sergeant Heath, he had an envelope waiting for them, with her name already on it, and that made her tremble again. Back in the sitting room, the women looked at her, impressed. Scotland Yard, said Mrs. Finey. Would you ever have believed it, Miss Ray? Isn't it wonderful how they can put it all together? But just fancy them going through Lenny's bits and pieces like that. Murder or no murder, I shouldn't want them poking about in my husband's things. Should you, Netta? She cocked her head. Lillian had taken the men into her bedroom and was murmuring with them there. Still, they've got to do it, I suppose, if it helps their investigations. Oh, but didn't it turn you right over hearing all that talk about poor Lenny's brains? The little girl had returned in a cloud of eau de cologne. Dumping a wriggling city into her mother's lap, she said, What did they say about Uncle Lenny's brains? Mrs. Viney pulled a sad face. They said there was a great big bruise on them. How do they know it? The doctors saw it. Well, how did they see it? Well, Vera was reaching for her cigarettes. They cut his head open, didn't they? Min squealed. Netta protested. The little girl looked appalled and delighted. Did they, Mum? Did they, Nanny? Of course they never did, said Mrs. Viney. Well, how did they do it then? Oh, well, the doctor's got a special light, I expect, and he's shown it in Uncle Lenny's ear. Hearing that, Violet got hold of a crayon lipstick from her mother's bag, and calling at the doctor's light, she started to go from person to person, saying she had to put it in their ears so that she could look at their brains. Frances obliged, tilting her head, tucking back her hair. But she did it distractedly, her eye on Vera. For, having offered her cigarettes, Vera had risen from the sofa to carry the saucer of stubs to the hearth and throw its contents on the coals. But instead of returning to her place, she had set the saucer on the mantelpiece and was looking around in search of something. Frances, her heart beginning to thud, watched her go to the easy chair and glance over the back of it. She watched her wander across the room to look in the shadows beneath the table. After that, there was only one more place for her to try. She went to the sofa, peered behind it, and, oh Christ, here it came. She reached a muscular braceleted arm into the gap between the sofa and the wall, brought out the stand ashtray, and, with a grunt of satisfaction, set it squarely down on the rug. Frances stared at the thing with eyes that, for a moment, seemed unable to close. There was a scorch mark on the base of it from where she had held it to the coals, and just an inch from where it stood on the carpet she could see now one of the stains. Again she felt the grip of Leonard's fingers, the burn of his cheek. The violence, the horror. It was all still there, in this cozy room. Couldn't anyone else feel it? But Netta, Min, and Mrs. Viney were fussing with the baby. Vera was thumbing a flame from the lady's lighter, and no one gave the ashtray a glance. No one save the little girl, who capered around it, the lipstick held between her fingers in a flapperish way. She hadn't got a doctor's light now, she announced. She got a cigarette. No, she hadn't. She's got a cigar. And for the next few minutes, she made elaborate play of puffing on the end of the crayon, then tapping it into the bronze effect bowl. When Lillian and the men emerged from the bedroom, Lillian stood in the doorway, saw the ashtray, and the last remaining bit of blood in her face seemed to drain out of it. She looked so dreadful that her mother gave a cry at the sight of her, and Inspector Kemp said, Yes, he was sorry to have kept Mrs. Barber so long. 
but with a lift of his eyebrows at Sergeant Heath. We've everything we need for now, I think. Francis saw the sergeant nod. He was tucking a bundle of things into his pocket. Letters and papers, perhaps a railway ticket. She was too far off to be sure. The inspector stepped forward to retrieve his hat. Passing Violet at the ashtray, she gave her a genial tap on the head. Having a smoke like the ladies, are you? What have you got there? A player's? It's a de risk, she answered in her withering way. Oh, it is, is it? Chuckling, he and the sergeant made their way out to the landing. When Frances rose to escort them, they waved her back. They could see themselves out, they assured her. They had put her to too much trouble already. As her steps faded on the staircase, she looked at Lillian. Are you all right? Lillian nodded, her head lowered. Yes, yes, I'm all right. They just asked the same things, all over again. I need the WC, though. I've been needing it all this time. Where are my shoes? Her mother found them and held them out. But don't go down there on your own. Not with murderers all over the place. Have someone go with you. Vera, I'm all right, said Lillian. She sounded fretful. Just let me be. Let you be. Francis moved forward. I'll go down with Lillian, Mrs. Viney. Oh, Miss Ray, are you sure? You've been so good. And, yes, said Lillian, let Francis take me down. She's the only one who doesn't fuss me. I can't stand it. Let Francis take me. The sharpness of her tone set City off off crying. She put a hand to her forehead, then caught hold of Francis's arm. They left the sisters seeing to the baby and went in silence down the stairs. Once they were in the kitchen with the door shut, she sank into a chair, making a pillow of her arms on the table and letting her head fall forward. Frances, alarmed, sat beside her. What's happened? What is it? She shook her head without raising it and answered in a murmur. Nothing. What did the inspector ask you, really? He asked all sorts of things, all about me and Len, where we go, what we do, who our friends are, things like that. But something's not right, Francis. He kept asking me about Charlie. You heard what he said Charlie told him about Friday night. Francis nodded. Why would Charlie say that? She hid her face again. I don't know. To lie like that, it doesn't make sense. Unless, well, unless he has something to hide. Something he's keeping from Betty? Do you think he's been seeing another girl? It must be that, mustn't it? And then, when Lillian didn't answer... God, it's more of a muddle than ever. And what did the sergeant take away? I'm not sure. It was all Len's stuff. Oh, it was dreadful, having to go through his things like that. And what they said about his, his brain. It was almost worse, wasn't it, than seeing it. She looked over at the door. Her pose, with the twist in it, added an extra layer of strain and urgency to her voice. What did they say about the wound? That it was vicious? How could they say that? They don't know. They weren't there. They're turning it into something else. Francis caught hold of her hand. But that's what we want, isn't it? It doesn't matter what they turn it into, so long as they don't think of us. It doesn't matter about Charlie. It might even help us because of the timing. If they think he died at 11, well, my mother was here then. She knows that you and I were in bed. But they've taken those hairs. The hairs don't prove a thing. And they must have seen the ashtray. Oh, Francis. Francis squeezed her fingers. But they're not looking for an ashtray. They're looking for a pipe or a mallet. They're looking for a man. Don't you see what it means? It means we've done it. This whole horrible business. It means it was worth it. It means it worked. 
Lillian gazed bleakly at her, but began to take in what she was saying. Do you think so? Truly? I think so, for now. We have to be careful, but I think so, for now. Some of the strain left Lillian's expression, but when she spoke again, it was with dreadful wariness. I almost don't care anymore. I care for your sake, but not for mine. I care for our sake, I mean, for the sake of everything we planned, but that's all still there. Last night, I kept dreaming about Len. I kept waking and putting out my hand, and Vera was there, and I thought it was him, and she gave a shudder and couldn't finish. After a long moment of silence, she pushed herself to her feet. I better not take too long, or they'll think I've fainted or something. I really do need the lavatory. There's still blood. It's still sore. Will you come outside with me? She asked it as if embarrassed, and once the door was open, she hesitated on the step. She must have been thinking, as Frances was, of the trips they'd made out here on Friday, the agonized hobble to the W.C., and then, a few hours later, the darkness, the haste, the strain and terror. She went quickly across the yard, then let Frances hurry her back out of the cold. In the kitchen, they hugged each other, and Frances felt her quiver like a string. But soon she eased herself away. I'll go back up to my, on my own. It might look funny if they see us together so much. Frances kept hold of her hands. She felt, weirdly, almost elated. I don't want to let you go. I don't want it either. But sometimes it's worse being with you in front of them than not seeing you at all. Don't you feel that? No, I can't bear to be apart from you. It puts me on edge. They're still on at me to go to the shop with them. Maybe I should, Frances. What? No, you mustn't. They don't understand why I want to stay here. I can't say it's because of you. Oh, if only we could just be together, alone. I feel like we never will again. There's the inquest, and then the funeral, and how will it be after that? Don't think about all that yet. I love you. I love you. Think about that. She came back into Frances' arms. Oh, I love you too. But her features were, were doughy with tiredness again, and she didn't cling to Frances as she had clung to her the night before. Even that quiver had gone out of her now. Once more, she eased herself free to spend a moment putting herself tidy. She let Frances support her to the bottom of the stairs, then dragged herself up on them alone. This time, it was Mrs. Viney who stayed the night, while the sisters and the children went home. She was less noticing than Vera, but more of a presence in the house, clattering about, sweeping and tidying, letting out bursts of sentimental song in a music called Quaver. When Frances went up at half-past nine, she found her in a little kitchen, already undressed for bed, her henned hair loose about her shoulders, an inch-wide strip of grey at the parting. From beneath the hem of her nightdress, her stockingless ankles stuck, stuck out like two, gray pe- two great pegs. She was happy to linger and chat, however, as she heated the water for Lillian's hot bottle, regaling Frances with stories of other family catastrophes. Hard confinements there had been plenty of, sudden deaths, maulings, scaldings, and Midland's cousin had got her scalp torn off by a loon. But they never had a murder, she concluded with a sigh, screwing in the rubber stopper. No, there never been a murder in a family. Never till now. Frances was almost sorry to say goodnight to her. Her own mood was still unnaturally buoyant. She lay in bed open-eyed, going over and over the inspector's visit, her mind running like an engine in too high a gear. Even next morning, the feeling persisted. She was up at half-past six, had washed and dressed by seven, determined to be ready for anything the day might spring on her. 
to the goggling boys who brought the bread and the meat, she spoke in a terse, unencouraging way. When the times arrived, she went looking through, she went through it looking for a mention of the case and found only a brief, brief report. Leonard's name was misspelled as Bamber. The paper was full of events in Turkey and Greece. There was an account of a massacre in Smyrna. It was a sort of bad news from which, ordinarily, she turned in despair. Now she seized on it as real, important, nothing like the patchwork of blunder and police supposition that had become this phantom thing, this imaginary murder on Champion Hill. But at nine, Vera returned to help prepare Lillian for the inquest. The five of them set off an hour later, and after that, her spirits lost some of their buoyancy. The day was gusty and chill. Their journey was the one that she and Lillian had taken to view Leonard's body, but this time they were traveling on foot. They must have made an odd-looking group, processing down the road at Mrs. Viney's clumping pace. Shoppers paused to stare at them. They were stared at again in the mean little residential streets beyond the green. And as they approached the coroner's court, they discovered that a crowd had gathered. People who had heard about the case, and attracted by the horror and the glamour of murder, had come simply to gawp. Unnerved, they pushed their way through them. But, but then there was a confusion of arrival at the building itself. There were newspaper men starting forward with questions, all calling Lillian's name. When Frances caught sight of Inspector Kemp, she felt a rush of pure relief. He was bizarrely like an ally here. He took them along a corridor into a crowded panel chamber. She saw faces that she recognized. Constable Hardy, Leonard's father, Charlie Wismuth, and Betty... There was more uncertainty for a minute or two over where to sit this time. Finally, a clerk led Lillian to a lonely place beside the coroner's chair, while Frances and her mother remained with Mrs. Viney and Vera, beside a man who introduced himself as Leonard's superior at the Pearl. The whole thing, she decided, was like a light, nightmarish wedding, with Lillian the unhappy bride, Leonard the eternally jilting bridegroom, and none of the guests wanting to be there or quite knowing what to do. Even the coroner, Mr. Sampson, looked a little viker-like, in a chinless, wet-lipped sort of way. He settled himself fussily in his special chair, and the jurymen were brought in. Inspector Kemp rose to give a statement of events. The police surgeon spoke briefly about the suspicious nature of the injury, but the only other witness called was Lillian. It was agonizing to have to watch from a distance as she got to her feet, her face as pale as ivory, her figure made small by the trumpery paneling of the room. She was asked to state her name and her relationship with the deceased, and to confirm that she had made the identification of the body. She spoke almost inaudibly, her gloved hand put out to a table at her side to steady herself. Her dark velvet hat had been borrowed from Vera. The open collar of her coat gave a glimpse of sooty-looking crochet. Her frock was a plum-colored plum one, Frances realized, dyed black. The coroner declared the inquest adjourned pending the results of the police inquiry, and they found themselves dismissed. Again, it was oddly like a wedding, the abrupt release from ceremony, the confusion about what was coming next. But this time, they were all thrown together in the narrow corridor. The man from the Pearl approached Lillian to tell her how stunned they all were at the office. Leonard's father came to exchange a few words with Frances and her mother. "'To think of people like us being mixed up in something like this,' he said, mopping his forehead." And there, too, of course, was Charlie. He gave Lillian a clumsy hug. How are you bearing up? Frances heard him ask her. Lillian shook her head. I can't think how I am, Charlie. It doesn't feel real, any of it. When I saw you sitting in there before, I couldn't believe that Len wasn't going to walk in and join you. I thought the same, he said, when I saw you. It just, it just beggars belief.
Betty took hold of his arm. The police won't leave him alone, you know. They saw him on Saturday and yesterday, too. He blushed. I just wish I had something to tell them. They say this fellow might have followed Len all the way home from Blackfires, that he'd been watching him all evening. But if that's true, well, I didn't see him. Honest to God, I wish I'd had. When I think of Len going off like that, when I think of us shaking hands at the tram stop, saying goodnight, see you next week, his voice thickened with real emotion. But Francis, who knew that he was lying, though she still had no idea why, could see the falseness of his manner. She could see in it the tug and the muscle. She could see it in the tug of his the tug of the muscles in his face, and it struck and it struck her that of course they needed his lie now. They needed it almost as much as their own. The same thought must have occurred to Lillian. Francis saw her pose slip as his did. Her expression grow for, forced. But then someone produced newspapers, the Daily Express and the Daily Mirror. The crush in the corridor grew more awkward as people drew together to look. The papers were not like the times. Francis saw with a chill. They'd both made room on their front pages for the Champion Hill murder, and while the Express offered only a blurry artist impression of the lonely spot at which the body was found, the mirror included two good quality photographs. One showed policemen on the street picking their way through the gutters, the search for the weapon. The other, more startling, was of Leonard himself, a younger Leonard, uniformed, some studio portrait from the war. When Lillian caught sight of this, she gave a cry, and Francis and Vera moved close to her to read the paper over her shoulder. The report had a quote from the man who had found Leonard's body, and another from Inspector Kemp. It mentioned Lillian by name. She was said to be still in that collapsed condition, but it was the photograph of Leonard that seemed to bother her the most. She didn't understand. Who had let the paper have it? Leonard's father looked slightly shifty. Well, he said. A man from the mayor had been round at the Chevenny Avenue yesterday. We didn't see any harm in it, Lillian. You gave it. Len's uncle Ted did. We didn't feel easy about letting a picture go, but Ted ran home and fetched his album, and we picked out the best. It might help the investigation, the mayor fellow said. It might prick a conscience or two to show what a fine boy Len was. Lillian wouldn't answer him. She stared at the photograph for another few seconds, then pushed it away from her as though the sight of it made her sick. Outside, the crowd seemed bigger than before, and a man with a camera was darting about. There was no chance to say an ordinary goodbye to Leonard's father, to Charlie or Betty. Frances and her mother became separated from them as soon as they left the steps. The gusty weather made everything worse. Hats and coats were flapping. The t- then two reporters approached Frances, having discovered how she wondered her, ne- her connection with the case. Could she and her mother say what their feelings had been on learning of Mr. Barber's murder? Could they spare a few moments for the readers of the news of the world? No, we can't," she said, turning her back on them. Her mother's hand had tightened on her arm. "This is frightful, Frances. Let's go home, can we? As quickly as we can." "Yes, of course. I'm just looking for Lillian. Wasn't she behind us when we came out?" "I don't know. Does it matter? We've done enough for her, surely. We can't go without her." Her family can see to her now. But there she was, just emerging from the building with her mother and sister, seeing the man with the camera and nervously putting down her head. She moved forward into the crowd, then lifted her gaze and looked around. "Where's Francis?" she asked Vera. Francis saw the words rather than heard them. She raised her hand, and after a moment or two of blind searching, Lillian's gaze caught on hers, to pick their way to each other through the stairs and the jostles. All these people," said Lillian. "What do they want?" Francis took hold of her arm. 
Come quickly, this way. But she pulled back. Francis, wait. Her mother and sister had caught up with her. Mrs. Viney, brick red, was glaring furiously at the faces turned their way. A lot of vultures, I'd call them. Ain't they got no sense of decency? And they got no notion of shame. You and your mother get going, Miss Ray, or they'll have the skin off your backs. We'll go by the quiet way, back to the shop. Lil's coming, Lil's coming with us. We managed to talk her round at last. Francis looked at Lillian. You're, you're going, then? Lillian's expression was wretched. It seems the best thing, after all. Vera and my mom can't keep coming to the house. It isn't fair on them. It isn't fair on your mother, either. I'll stay just for a few days, till after the funeral. She saw Francis's face. It isn't so long, Francis. You don't have any of your things. Vera says she'll fetch them tomorrow. I can borrow hers till then. I could bring them to you, say we need to talk, or... I don't know, but Vera will get them. I won't need much. There seemed a thousand things to be said, but no chance to say anything with so many people about, with Mrs. Viney and Vera right there, and Francis's mother looking on tensely from the crowded pavement. Even Inspector Kemp had appeared and was watching them now. So Francis nodded. That was all. They reached and patted at each other. Patted, she thought, so clumsily that they might have had paws rather than hands, or been wearing boxing gloves. And then they parted. Lillian turned to catch hold of her sister's arm. Francis rejoined her mother, and they headed back to Camberwell.